Hello, friends. I want to tell you about Diaspora Co., the company that is building a better spice trade. If you don't know Diaspora Co., let me tell you all about it. You want to know how are they building a better spice trade? Well, first and foremost, they're paying farmers four times the commodity price and three times the fair trade price. And these are not just transactional relationships. These are long-term relationships that they've been building year after year after year that touches over 200 regenerative farms and most importantly, 1,500 farm workers. These are actually some of the very best spices that you can buy on the market. The freshness and potency are unmatched. So if you're thinking right now about how you've had the same dusty spices in your cabinet for two years, head to diasporaco.com and bring home a world of flavor. Free shipping on orders of $70 or more. Welcome to the Stephen Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm excited for you to meet today's guest, Julia Fine. Julia is a writer and historian pursuing a PhD in Stanford with an area of focus, stay with me now, in food and environmental history of the British Empire. Wow. Julia is also the co-author of an outstanding contribution to Whetstone Magazine, Volume 11, entitled... Pennyroyal, Rue, and Hickory Pickery. Herbal abortifacients are deeply rooted in American history. This is, of course, timely and relevant given that on June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court of the United States effectively eliminated abortion as a constitutional right for its citizens in favor of state regulation. And not only is this horrifying and enraging, The most upsetting part is that at the center of this majority opinion was a matter of historical fact made ahistorical. The majority opinion was that the court found the right to abortion was not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. That's a direct quote. This is demonstrably not true, but laws are made all the time on historical lies. It's what's at stake when we observe the DeSantis playbook unfolding in Florida right now as public education is gutted in favor of a polite white supremacist agenda. The story is always the highest stakes. It's where the power lives, and the way we can tell is based on how they fight on these lies. Julia is the first in a series of guests we're chatting with who has contributed to Whetstone Magazine Volume 11. So if you're already subscribed to the magazine, this article will ring a bell for you. If you're not subscribed to Whetstone Magazine, you know what to do. Subscribe at whetstonemagazine.com and you can follow along as these episodes air. Okay, now here's Julia. Julia Fine, thank you for making time to talk to me today. You are broadcasting to us from Palo Alto, California. You've got lots of books behind you, which I think I'm looking at. Is that the Jancis Robinson Hugh Mount yeah. Wine that's book? That's an impressive spot. Yeah, that's the, oh, that's the companion gosh. to wine. Let's talk about wine. Okay. I, you know, I was a former 
sommelier, you've clearly got an interest in wine. What's your interest level in wine? So I am uh, nothing, nowhere close to a sommelier, but I do, I'm really interested in wine from a historical perspective. So I'm a PhD student in history here at Stanford, and I write about a lot of things, everything food and environment and imperialism. And one of those things that I've written about is wine. So I've written a little bit about kind of hybrid grapes and the history of hybrid grapes like the Catawba in the United States. And then just some other short things about kind of wine and climate science. But I am eager to learn more. So I would love to learn from you about wine because I am by no means a present day. No, but you know what? That's what we call the alley-oop. I threw it and you dunked it because it's so interesting to me. This is a great point of entry into your work. It's so interesting to me. You know, I've, I approach that work in a very academic way. It, it's basically a textbook, right? But you're looking at it from the point of view of a historian, which is low key how I got into Whetstone, right? Like that's the origins of our company. That's the origins of my interest in history. I did not perform well in history class. I didn't finish college or I'm not like a scholar in that way. And yet it was my education as a sommelier that really kind of led me into this historical, well, worldview, actually. I can't unsee it. I just remembered part of how we're supposed to open up this show is that we're supposed to drink tea together. And I got so excited talking about your books and wine that I forgot about this opening segment. So let's pause on that for one moment. I definitely want to come back to that because I want to hear you talk about food and wine and history and origins and all of that. But first and foremost, we're going to share a beverage. What is your beverage today? What are you drinking? I'm, um, well, it says coffee on this, but it is actually tea. I'm drinking some Jasmine green tea from Five Mountain Teas out here in San Francisco, which I've been a little obsessed with. It's been kind of keeping me through. It's almost exam time and final paper time. So it's been getting me through. Yeah. Five Mountain Tea. I don't know if I know them. It certainly sounds prestigious, but I love drinking tea too. I'm actually drinking a green tea that actually is from China Mm. that my mom brought back from a visit a couple years ago. And yeah, I'm steep. I do. I like to do my teas on like an extraordinarily short steep Mm. and then maybe revisit. Oh, that's good. I hope yours is hitting too. I need that. So yeah, the tea is invigorating. Thank you for that. So let's swerve back into this. How did you, so I've explained a little bit about how I came to, you know, this worldview. How did you make the connection between food or botany and and history? Yeah, I mean, I've always, you know, loved food. But then I think it was my sophomore year of college, I was taking a class on kind of, it was called like England After Empire. It was about post-imperial Britain. And we just read kind of a very short piece about curry houses and kind of the banality of multiculturalism in Britain by um, a scholar by uh, named Elizabeth Butner. And that was just crazy. Like the whole thing was wild to me because I, I just didn't realize that someone could actually study food history and use it as a way to, you know, it's kind of been out to say, but to see all of these connections and perspectives and, and histories and stories. And once I read that piece, I was like, well, shoot, I guess that's, you know, what I have to do for the rest of my life and I can't stop. So since then, it's just been full steam ahead. Done. And had you 
ever really considered the role of or the relationship between food and imperialism to that point? Or was that a revelatory moment for you? It was pretty revelatory. I mean, I came into college wanting to study imperialism, broadly speaking. Like it was just on my mind, you know, growing up in the U.S. in the 2000s. Um, So I came in wanting to study empire, particularly the British Empire. But by that point, you know, I had taken, you know, a few introductory classes and, and that certainly food, I mean, maybe the famine, we talked about famines, but food itself was not necessarily something discussed in my classes at first. But once I saw that you could, and I would argue you have to talk about food in these contexts. Exactly. I, yep. Yeah, I was like sold. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about your work then even more, your, your research around that. It's also an area of interest for me. One of the things that always strikes me about the relationship between food and empire and the British empire in particular is how much of the things that we suffer from today, the basis of that suffering are really things that are on the surface, extraordinarily frivolous, like sugar and coffee and chocolate and spices Can you talk a little bit about some of the relationships around just kind of like aristocracy and the thirstiness to emulate the aristocrats and how that shows up not only in food, but also in food culture more broadly? Oh, that is such a good question. I mean, it's so interesting because I I think on the one hand, you're right, like they are what we would consider kind of like frivolities or luxuries, like I'm probably not going to die without coffee, right? But I think it's also really important when thinking about these things, like, yes, I, I totally agree they were, there was this kind of like lust for spices, this kind of elite want for things like coffee and tea and new social signifiers that were really important to the aristocracy. And, and we could argue that, you know, then lower classes began to kind of emulate that. But on the other hand, there were like kind of economic and material considerations that I think are really important to think about, like how things like sugar and coffee and tea, of course, were, you know, also meant to make the laborers and the laboring classes be able to work longer and without breaks. Right. So it's this like really kind of interesting interplay of like culture, environment, and then of course, capitalism, all kind of mixing together. So yeah, it's something I think about all the time. I appreciate the mention always of labor, honestly, especially in relationship to what we're talking about. I don't know if this is like a chicken in the egg per se, but clearly there was a a financial or economic impetus to grow these sectors. And yet, to me, what was encouraging the growth was the fact that there were these spices or ingredients or just luxury commodities Mm -hmm. that people wanted. Where was that demand coming from? That demand was coming from basically England and people who even like kind of now I think about, you know, people who get all worked up about monarchies and all their personal business and stuff. It does seem that it is part of a larger tradition of just wanting what rich people have and then the rich people kind of exploiting all of us, you know, for that want 
by monetizing it, by exploiting labor and so on. It does seem like there's a close proximity between both the demand side and also, oh shit, we can really exploit the thirstiness of people who are not rich, but want to pretend like they are. Yeah, I think the proximity, that's like such a good way to put it. The proximity, I really, I really like that. There's this book that I really love too. It's not about spices and coffee and tea as much, but it's kind of, it talks about this in terms of sugar, wheat, and meat. It's called Diet for a Large Planet by Chris Otter. And he really talks about kind of the way these imperial structures were set up to feed kind of growing demands for meat in the, you know, metropolar, so to speak. So I, I don't know, the way, the way you put it of proximity is like so perfect. Because I remember I read an article of yours in Civil Eats where I used to write, um, Naomi is a big mentor of mine. Shout out to Naomi and Civil Eats. Amazing outlet. But talking about kind of the relationship between a changing climate and the wine that we drink and the grapes that grow. Again, just because we are, again, I'm not a historian, but like I, I play one on TV, right? So taking a longer view of that, extraction on the land is connected to this centuries-long practice of agricultural commodities and, and profiting off of that, et cetera. Can you talk about the relationship kind of, or the, the continuum really of the extraction of the commodities on the land? And like you wrote about in your article, how that shows up or is showing up or may show up in our lives, in our day-to-day -day lives in ways that we may not have considered. Um, so that, that article was about kind of the history in some ways of grape growing in the United States. And it's such an interesting history to me and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because I mean, for so many years, it wasn't California that was the seat of the American wine industry, it was Ohio. And prior to, you know, the mid 19th century, they, there, there hadn't been invented like such things as copper fungicides and Bordeaux mixture and all the things that we use today to keep vineyards afloat. And so in, in, in the United States, vineyards really had to rely on these hybrid grapes because they had co-evolved with fungal pressures like black rot and downy mildew. But then you have, you know, the failure of the Ohio wine industry for a variety of reasons. California becomes kind of the main seat of the American wine industry. And you have the, such a thing as Bordeaux mixture and copper sulfates and new fungicides being invented. And so then California starts relying on Vitis vinifera grapes or kind of what the traditional European wine grapes. Um, but so the article was really about how that model is becoming less and less sustainable in an era of climate change and instability where you have kind of rising fungal diseases. And so growers and particularly laborers in the vineyards are having to spray these fungicides more and more and more. And even the viticulturists I talked to, they were all saying, you know, even the organic fungicides, they're still heavy metals. I still don't want to be spraying them, you know, 15, 20 times a year. And you think about who is spraying them. And I mean, it's it's a class issue. It's a racial justice issue. It's all of these things in one. And so kind of expanding our palates to kind of what wines we want to grow, what kind of wines we want to drink, I, I think is a necessary step going forward. Yeah, no, I hear you on that. It's not actually a conversation that I've seen or consumed much in wine circles. So I was very appreciative of the mention of what the future of wine consumption might look like with respect to varieties that are native, so to speak. All right, let's talk about your article in Whetstone 
volume 11. It was a remarkable piece that I want to talk about. Pennyroyal Rue and Hickory Pickery. Herbal abortifacients are deeply rooted in American history. So this article is high level, a historical view of herbal medicines, herbal abortifacients as really a normal and well-documented part of everyday life dating back a number of centuries. I think you maybe even go back to like fifth century or something like that. So I don't think, you know, I don't want to belabor the point around why this is an especially timely issue, right? I think it's fairly obvious, but I would like to know about your journey into this research, especially with respect to the the U.S. Supreme Court making safe healthcare inaccessible for for women. I mean, like you said, I think the context is fairly um, apparent. So I wrote this piece with my colleague, Dr. Ashley Buchanan, and we had worked together at Dumbarton Oaks, where we, which is a museum in Washington D.C., and we were researching kind of plant humanities um, and different uses of plants in herbals. Um, and at the same time, I had also been working at the Folger Shakespeare Library, which houses a, a one of the biggest collections of early modern English manuscript recipe books. Um, and what was so interesting is when you look at these herbals and when you look at these recipe books, it, it's just there. I mean, no one's saying, you know, this is an abortion, but but you start to learn what is an amenagogue, what stops menstruation, what could potentially, you know, draw down the menses, as people say, or kind of expel a fetus. And, and so once you kind of learn this new language and this new way of looking for things, it's pretty apparent as a historian. But what was so interesting to me regarding the Dobbs case is that, you know, in the decision, you have some pretty shoddy history saying it wasn't a thing, which I think is totally, I mean, as apparent from the article, that's just completely not true. But what was interesting is there was also all of these other law review journal articles coming out by lawyers and law students and, and, and kind of people in the legal profession basically saying, well, we did a search of, you know, the word abortion and it was only mentioned 10 times. And, and thus it must not, thus, you know, the Supreme Court was right. It, it was not such a thing. And as historians to me and Ashley, that was a wild kind of proposition. I mean, not only is that not true, but it's also just not the way you approach history. You have to really think about the context about how people would be writing these things and you need kind of careful study. And so our impetus was kind of just, I mean, it was both to write against the history that was presented in the Dobbs case, which I think many, many historians in other publications too have said, you know, this is fundamentally incorrect. Um, but it was also just kind of to model how you can't, how you should be doing or can be doing history of this sorts, how you have to look at the broader context at what words people would have used at what phrases at the euphemisms and such. And the botany component of it, was this part of your research and scholarship prior to the article? Had you been looking at, at plant medicine more broadly? Yeah, so more broadly, I, I've written about botany and about herbs. I had focused when I was doing my research at Dumbarton Oaks, I'd written a lot about turmeric and other herbs. So I was familiar with the kind of sources. When I was working at the Folger Shakespeare Library, I was also just looking at these manuscript receipt books. So I had familiarity with the sources we were using, but I hadn't previously looked at abortifacients. Whereas Ashley had, I mean, she has a PhD in history um, focused on early modern Italy and medicine and botany. And she had previously written some blog posts and some other pieces about dittany, which we mentioned in the article as an abortifacient. So she had been thinking about these things. And I had been thinking about kind of more broadly the sources too as well. And so we paired up and co-wrote it together and it was a really wonderful experience. 
and a tremendous, tremendous article. So what's what's got your attention at the moment, whether um, it be with respect to what you're literally working on at Stanford or maybe just like what's piquing your interest? What are you curious about right now or really engaged in? Oh, I've been thinking a lot about like the nitrogen cycle and fertilizer lately. Okay. I've been writing, um, I'm working on a paper right now about the history of nitrogen, both in terms of fertilizer, but also in terms of the history of nutrition, because nitrogenous food stuff was kind of how people would refer to protein at times. So I want to look at and see if there's links between how people understood nitrogen in agriculture and how people understood nitrogen in bodies and kind of what that means. But Wow, that is super cool. So nitrogen, are you talking like plant proteins or... It's like what allows crops to grow, but it was also understood as like, you know, just meat, like meat was a nitrogenous food stuff. Oh, wow. So it was almost like uh, synonymous with talking about meat, calling it nitrogen. Yeah, it was in a lot. So this is in like, you know, 1860s. There was this idea that I keep reading about, about how, you know, lots of foods have nitrogen, right? Like lentils would have nitrogen and such, but meat was the purest form of nitrogen. It was the most absorbable form. And so thus it was became like the best. I I don't, I'm kind of obsessed with thinking about. Sounds like some real 19th century rhetoric, the purest form Mm -hmm. of nitrogen. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And it continues, which is wild to me, how far you see it going up to. But it's, yeah, it's been fun to think about. That's very cool. Your scholarship is clearly right up my alley. Really, really, again, grateful for your contribution to the magazine. Also, like society more broadly, you know, I I really strongly believe in the value and utility of people who take a long view of society and culture and present that back to us. I think that's super valuable. So thank you for that. Before we go, do you have a thing that you ate this week that's really good? Yeah, I've been on this side, I've been doing like a project on cheese. And so I got the chance to visit some creameries in the state last week. So I've been, I've been eating a lot of Point Reyes cheese. Um, and they have oh, one called fire. Yeah, oh. it's so good. It's so good. So. so good. Do you know what flavor of Point Reyes you've been getting? So I got, they very kindly gave me a bunch. So last week I ate the Quinta, which is their new one, which is kind of like a bloomy rind with the bay leaf. It's so good. Like it's, yeah, it's really good. And then I had. um, No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to, I mean, I could keep talking about this for days. Like then I had, I tried the flavors. The truffle one was so good. Like it was all amazing. Wow. I was about to say I'm out here hating hard because I'm in Atlanta And I used to live in the Bay for a long time. I lived in the Bay for like 10 years. So I know the vibes. And the thing about living in California, especially the Bay Area, is you're always going to get the best stuff and you're going to get it first. And so I miss just not being the wave. Like you, you are the wave right now. You might not even understand it, but you're like, oh yeah, Point Reyes just came out with a new cheese. It's fire. Because you're right there. So I do miss that, but yeah, great creamery. 
I'm trying to now think there's a spot in an undisclosed location in Gwinnett County where my parents live close to their house outside of Atlanta. There's a new Mexican spot that just opened up that I will actually put the name in the show notes. I just can't remember right now. It opened up a week ago, but I've been using that place as my office during the daytime, kind of working my way through their menu. The highlight, I would say I had a caldo de camarón. So I had these really plump, like translucent shrimp that was cooked in a very hot and spicy, very hot and very spicy tomato broth. And the shrimp were like, I could tell they had just only been cooked by putting them in the broth itself. And so they were like the right amount of plump and cooked the right amount of tenderness. Very good. Highlight of my eating week. Anyways, Julia, this has been extremely fun for me. I hope for you and um, excited to talk more with you in the future, undoubtedly, as we follow all of your good work. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun. Thank you to executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer Max Kolachuk, editor Ilgen Kordogan, and associate producer Quentin LeBeau. Special thank you to music composer Catherine Yang for all of the music that you heard on this episode and Alexandra Bowman for the outstanding cover art. You can follow us and learn more about Whetstone Media at our website, whetstonemedia.com or on Instagram and YouTube at Whetstone Media. We'll be back next week. 